Welcome to Mythos, an audio journey through the folklores and mythologies of the world. Welcome to Law Britannia series of Mythos, where we explore the fascinating folklore of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, both ancient and contemporary. From southern England's chalk ridges to boggy Scottish headlands overlooking deep and mysterious lochs, there are barrows, megaliths, and standing stones of great antiquity. Before the Romans, before the Anglo-Saxons, before the Scandinavian or Norman invasions, there were these weird structures, temple-like megalithic standing stones, like the well-known Stonehenge, and large grass-covered earthen mounds, man-made earthworks with seemingly subterranean magical intent. And it's this intent that Britain's various aforementioned invaders attempted to make sense of, co-opting them into legends and folklore made in their own image. Positioned in the undomesticated space of countryside, these Neolithic mysteries have been adopted as strange and marginal places, suitable for witchcraft, for the gallows, and equally as often as portals into fey worlds. The Neolithic cultures who erected these monuments remain vague, obscured by the historical haze of many millennia. Yet perhaps the subsequent peoples, the Saxons, etc., perceived what archaeological research has now shown to be true, that these ancient monoliths were built with intention, that the Neolithic peoples who erected them did so with an already established and complex astro-mythical belief system, perhaps developed over many millennia in those previous hunter-gatherer areas predating even Neolithic peoples. These ancient monoliths somehow unite the human experience of both death and the heavenly sphere, a cosmology that perhaps, perhaps sees some link, some relationship between the long line of human ancestors and the movements of the celestial spheres. In Scotland in particular, internment of the dead and astronomical phenomena, or according to Hagenbottom and Clay, the two most common elements associated with standing stones. And of course, there remains the astonishing fact that, according to archaeoastronomers, standing stones seem to consistently align with the moon's rising and setting points, as well as the sun at winter solstice and equinoxes. Is it no wonder, then, that our prehistoric sites have been and continue to be seen as sources of supernatural wonder and spiritual potency. Welcome to the Prehistoric Sites episode of Mythos. Story 1, Wayland Smithy. On a ridgeway in South Oxfordshire, on an elevated route that has been walked for 5,000 years, poised just above the White Horse of Huffington, there is an ancient tomb, a grass-covered mound created by ancient hands. And as legend has it, the chamber grave of a preternaturally skilled blacksmith. The Anglo-Saxons knew him as Wayland. The ancient Norse knew him as Voland. And perhaps on a calm day, quiet and isolated, you can hear the echoes of pain and hammer, of slavery and exile, of elvish skill and iron struck. For Wayland Smithy is the landmark that contains the memory of our lame god blacksmith, both pitiful and remarkable. 
While there are differences between the Saxon and Norse versions of the story, I would like to pay homage to the Norse influence on British folklore and tell the story of Wayland's counterpart, Voland, but will use the name Wayland to make a direct link to Wayland Smithy, the aforementioned Neolithic chambered longbarrow. Wayland Smithy is a longbarrow that, if one listens carefully, contains echoes of rage and pain. And indeed, Wayland's ghost would be a potent one if encountered on that high, verdant ridge, windswept with moaning gusts. For our outcast smith god was highly coveted by King Nidid, and highly coveted by the queen. From Wayland's fiery den came swords that conquered, and jewels that adorned, and cups that entertained, beautiful, complicated artworks that adorned power, made power, and maintained power. No, Wayland could not be parted with. So the queen took King Nidid to the side and said, Hold him to our side by crippling him, my lord. Have your trusted knights hold him down, order them to slip their knives behind his knees, and sever the tendon completely. His forge, then, will be ours. And so it was done. Wayland cursed and screamed and spat rage and pain as they thrust the knife behind each knee, and rage and pain as they sliced the tendons. Rage and pain as he crippled was carried by the illustrious knights to a lonely island the hamstrung smith and his smithy. The smith's slave, whose every step was a wobbling labored affair, like a horse attempting to walk upright. The hamstrung smith, impotent. Rage and revenge now. He would see to it soon enough. Our lame master of esoteric arts, in a flurry of fire and molten metal, formed the swords that conquered and the jewels that adorned and the cups that entertained on his lonely island held captive by the king. And it came to pass that the king sent his sons to the island to supply the hamstrung smith with vast supplies of ore. The burgeoning young men would need to start overseeing the kingdom at any rate. And what better task than to fuel the fire that formed the swords that conquered and the jewels that adorned and the cups that entertained. So after the king's sons ordered and mandated and organized, well, the king's sons felt a hypnotic pull towards the ramshackle stone forge with its scarlet breath fire and heat-distorted atmosphere and ghost water steam. Without a word, they walked slowly into the doorway And my, the great dragon energy of it all, bellows and steam and fire and anvil, the ore filth and the glowing sword, iron being hammered and beaten and molded, the beautiful cacophony of screaming metal, a taste of the glory they so desperately wanted in battle, their mouths watered. And Wayland, the hamstrung smith, when he saw who stood in his door, well, His mouth watered as well. He saw rage and revenge through the heat-distorted atmosphere. He saw his own loneliness and despair as a molten sword thrusting into their smug little hearts. Smiling and walking towards the king's sons, the hamstrung smith wobbled. A hobbled fire fawn, all grotesque limp and molten ore soul. 
Greetings, Wayland, the eldest son said. You form the very bones of the earth into treasures. Bones indeed, the hamstrung smith replied with an iron smile. Then he said to the king's sons, I will show you my art if you come again, but alone. For I learned my art in the bowels of the earth, and my soul has passed through icy waters and heat-blasted air and scorching fire. I will not put my secrets on display for all, only a select few. The sons agreed, of course, and as promised, returned alone. Bones, the slavesmith whispered to himself as he saw them approach. The bones of the earth indeed. He gripped his hammer. And when it was done, when the two princes' bodies had been hammered like ore, when their souls wavered and dissipated into the heat-distorted atmosphere, the hamstrung smith's grin glowed with the scarlet-breathed fire. He hid their battered bodies in the mud beneath the anvil. And so the king's sons were no more than bones of the earth. Meanwhile, the king and the queen, not knowing where their precious sons could be, having sent every worthy knight in the realm to search for them, well, their grief was great. They tried to assuage their grief through more treasures, more swords and jewels and cups so lavish, so very lavish. They sent precious metals and ore to the hamstrung smith, who was weary of their treasure gorging. Ah, he said, I will form the very bones of the earth into treasure, he thought, his every muscle filled with rage and revenge. And so it was. The king's son's teeth, the king's son's eyes, and the fragile bits of their skulls became his materials, and he mingled their bones with ore and jewels to make the swords that conquered, and the jewels that adorned, and the cups that entertained. And perhaps one day, an archaeologist will dig deep enough to find them. Story 2, Five Knolls Round Barrow, Bedfordshire. Perhaps a ferry path runs from Galley Hill to Five Knolls, the ancient burial place of five chieftains, or so it is said. Perhaps at twilight, as you step closer and closer to Five Knolls Barrow, you will see sliding shadows and uncanny shiftings on the gentle green undulations, echoes of the ancient weird. And when you arrive, as day slowly bleeds out into night, you'll feel the pulse of a fey world beneath your feet. You'll sense an otherworldly order to which you simply do not belong. No wonder, then, that the ancient Saxons chose this Neolithic barrow as a place to deposit the potentially vengeful departed. Perhaps they, too, felt the sense of the weird pulsing beneath their feet. Perhaps they felt the ghostly rage of a Neolithic woman emanating from the earth. And maybe they sensed the remains of that crouched female skeleton, uncovered later in 1928 during an excavation, a Neolithic knife at her shoulder. They felt the presence of the unacceptable deceased and stowed away their own spiritually repulsive dead. Thirty bodies, in fact, later excavated, with hands tied behind their backs. From the unknown Neolithic peoples to the Saxons to the English peasants of later centuries, something about that barren yet weirdly undulating barrow drew yet more spiritual rubbish 
The barrow became an open mouth that swallowed death, chewed it like cud, and spat out sinister spires of beckoning power. And medieval English folk felt too, and erected their gallows not far from five knolls at Galley Hill, where Neolithic peoples deposited the slaughtered dead, their countrymen of the 15th century also felt the uncanny shape of the hill and its weird power felt its restraining power on the equally weird souls of the criminal. So then, imagine the murderer's death march to Gallows Hill. As he drags his soon-to-be carcass up the slope, he sees the mean, minimalist, wooden crookback of a gallows, gaunt in its loneliness. As lonely as the silence, a silence combined with the grass-padded footsteps of the condemned and his witnesses. And in the very shadow of the gallows, there is the unholy grave, an unceremonious hole reserved for the criminal corpse. Then, the footsteps on the creaking ladders and the rope around the neck. And as the witnesses stand round, the executioner abruptly kicks the ladder out from beneath the condemned feet. The silence of the wide world making the action almost a casual gesture. Then, the condemned feet kicking pathetically. A final bodily tantrum against a cruel universe. The last gasp, then the criminal head goes limp, oddly angled and glassy-eyed. The body is manhandled and dumped at the edge of the grave, with the witnesses declaring, We will bury him head down, topsy-turvy and vertically pointed towards hell's depths. And so it is. One wise old crone, though, stands at the edge of the grave, watching sadly as the corpse is deposited headfirst into a tunnel-like grave. And tucked beneath Granny's arm is a horse's skull, and clasped in her withered fist is a pair of dice. She tosses both into the grave, the skull and dice full of apotropaic magic, a spiritual restraint to keep the criminal body from slithering out of its grave and tormenting the living, a perverse sort of protection to ward off sneaking homeless imps who would possess the bodies of the scandalous dead. And when the last layer of soil is thrown over the corpse and his macabre companions, the witnesses make their way down the hill, putting earth and magic and distance between them and human disgrace. Story 3, The Rollwright Stones Midsummer's Eve, on the side of a boundary hill between Oxfordshire and Warwickshire, and some local people have gathered on this hill around a large slab of stone called the Kingstone, an ancient monolith that seems almost worm-eaten. A hush descends over all as one of them takes a knife and cuts into the nearby eldern tree. The tree is a witch petrified, bark skin and leaf hair. Hush, hush as the tree bleeds thick and dark. Solemn silence as the kingstone creaks and groans. The ancient petrified king's leprous stone head, that lump of porous pox-scarred stone mounted on top, is creaking and groaning as it turns, as if casting an old man's impatient glance at the witch who protects him. 
The kingstone stands alone, decrepit and yet dignified in its crumbling isolation. A short distance from the petrified king are a cluster of five stones, leaning towards each other in obvious conspiratorial positions. The treacherous, whispering nights. A silent twilight might provide just the right conditions to hear the whispering nights king betraying murmurings. For the story is this. The great king chanced upon Mother Shipton. And to chance upon Mother is to encounter a destiny-changing force. No trifling local medicine woman is Mother Shipton. A prophetess born in a Yorkshire cave, her mother a nun who coupled with a devil. Her parentage and power are on par with Merlin himself, born of blood and isolation and stone. She befriended forest creatures and marginal spiritual beings. Her chariot, filled with peering hidden imps, was pulled by great stags, and her mind was beleaguered with strange whispering prophecies and cataclysmic images. The king, well, he was a king on ruling, as all kings are, and Mother Shipton knew it. Mother acted wisely, used self-interested riddle prophecies to trick the king. She said to him, take seven long strides, and if you see Long Compton, then you will indeed be king. Well, I'm on a hill, thought the king. This is an easy task, just a few strides, and I will see Long Compton. Well then, if it's that simple, the king immediately moved towards the brow of the hill, eager royal strides. And on the sixth stride, however, Mother Shipton merged her cave-born power with the earth, caused the ground to swell, and perhaps her imps swarmed inside like colony-building ants. Regardless, she impregnated that ground, and on the seventh stride, the king's view was blocked. And she said, Ah, oh, now, my king, as long Compton you cannot see, king of England you will not be. Confused, the king demanded, Why this clever lie? This nun-offspring born of a stone womb became mother herself. And Mother Shipton soothed the king with a grander prophecy. You will be king, but not this day. And so she sung her lullaby incantations. Sleep, king, sleep. And as she sung, the king felt his mind grow heavy and his sight grow dim. Sleep, king, sleep. His limbs became leaden and with one last sigh became stone, restful, and still. And as she sang her lullaby incantations, Mother Shipton made promises. I will protect you, King, until the day that you are needed and will awaken. And as she sang her promises, they coursed through her blood, turning it to sap. Her lullaby surged through her skin, turning it to bark. Mother Tree and King Stone. Protection, perhaps, yet the cost the atrophied pain of being turned to stone, the trapped consciousness in the stones, slowly withering into a wisp like the wind that has slowly disintegrated it for centuries. The wind forming the king's mind and spirit into its own image, present, certainly, but invisible, with no clear origin. And the magic still lingers there to this day. 
a small girl visited recently with her family and was inexplicably terrified of the fey feeling about the place. Perhaps Mother Shipton's lullaby incantation still resonates in the very earth, for the little girl had a peculiar nightmare. Troubling dreams of a woman deep beneath the stones in the cavernous earth, a woman who turned into a serpent. No one has ever told the girl of the fae folk that live here, but she senses them nonetheless. Story four, the Calanay Standing Stones of the Isle of Lewis, Scotland, West Kennet Longbarrow of Wiltshire, England, and The Shining One. I often imagine a Neolithic man 4,000 years ago turning slowly in the middle of these slender, elegant stone slab, using every fluid movement of his body to take in one meager human movement, the enormous sea lock in the distance, the peat-lavished headland on which he stood, the elegant five-ton slabs of rock encircling him, and the graceful arc of the celestial sphere. The Milky Way's millions of shining children twinkling in the black night sky, unpolluted by light in the Isle of Lewis. I imagine him becoming dizzy, disoriented, not just from the movement, but from the great hum and hymn of the world's enormity and symmetry. The thirteen stone slabs encircled him like a womb, with avenues of stones extending out towards the cardinal directions, drawing into the center all the spiritual potency of south, east, and west, the symmetrical intent of unknown forces in east and west's right angles to north and south. And throughout his life, the stone circle has been a point of reference for innumerable settings and risings of the moon and sunsets at winter solstice and equinoxes. And every year, his favorite moment, that beautiful symmetry of being when the southern stone aligns with the setting of the midsummer full moon behind Mount Clisham. Celestial sphere, cardinal points, and then that powerful sense of unity completed by the earth itself and the chambered tomb beneath his feet. All of human experience, time and lifespan and seasons and death all mingled with the outward realities of orientation, sky, stone, and earth. Our Neolithic man is mostly lost to time, and so his understanding of something very odd about the Calanay stones. A northward-pointing stone-lined avenue. And it is this avenue with its megalithic centenaries lining up on either side of the path that paves the way for the annual appearance of a truly otherworldly being. Early in the morning of Midsummer's Eve, just as the sun rises, a visitor may at first think it is some trick of the rising sun, some strange phenomenon which, uh, with which they are unfamiliar, a figure emanating pure white light, a celestial corona encircling what could be a human, at least in basic form. A being that has drunk starlight and basked in the last full blast of a supernova. Beautiful and yet so very painful to look upon. Not painful to the eye, but painful to the mind. Then a cuckoo calls 
And at that moment, the figure begins to walk the length of the north-facing avenue, its strange mingling of moonglow and sunshine spotlighting the ancient gray nice stones. The visitor has seen the Shining One, a legendary entity purported to walk the length of the North Avenue early every morning on Midsummer's Eve. On that day, the sun and moon incarnate walk amongst us. And if folklore is to be believed, this light entity is also purported to visit West Kennet Longbarrow in Wiltshire, a marvelously intact earth mound with a stone burial chamber. Ancient, but strangely preserved, complete with a stone-lined corridor and ethereal chambers opening out from this millennium's old corridor. Indeed, if aboriginal mythologies can shed some light on what ancient Neolithic peoples believe, perhaps, just perhaps, we can identify the Shining One, albeit with some level of conjecture, as a heavenly ancestor, one of the millions who had passed from this earth-bound existence up along the vertical earth-sky axis of their cosmos to a world far above human existence. Yet, when the Shining One visits West Kennet, for reasons unknown, it brings another uncanny being, one of the many entities that populate the many layers of other worlds that exist between earth and sky and beyond. One witness one midsummer morn saw this, an impossible light, unreal yet brilliant. Then, the clear outline of a human form, which pulsated and swirled and collapsed into the form until a clearly dimensional being made of pure light arrived upon the scene, and loping by his side, a hound of sorts with the same light energy in its white fur and bright red ears beautiful and invigorating and benign. Yet, there must be a reason why, thousands of years ago, the barrow was put out of use. Mysteriously, um, for reasons unknown, massive stone slabs were erected to block the entrance. Perhaps, the shamanic journeys of interdimensional travel that supposedly took place in the stone burial chambers had tapped into or unleashed energies both benign and sinister. Whatever the origin, many report that West Kennet Longbear contains spots in which acoustic change and amplification seem charged with energy, reverberating energies that are earthy, sometimes benevolent, and other times angered and headache-inducing. Peter Knight has collected many reports of powerful phenomena, including, well, perhaps a Neolithic ancestral being, but certainly a conscious entity that has learned to slip into the human body, living human bodies, and wield the vocal cords of their human hosts. Imagine then, the cave blackness at night, punctuated by candlelight, and in the blackness, an even more opaquely black mist forming within, and then a peripheral feeling of, of static, of, well, sharpness. Then on the floor, chevron formations, a controlled lightning energy, around, above, behind, energy constant and profound. Imagine then a presence forming in the midst of this. Indeed, there must be a reason why thousands of years ago the barrow was put out of use, 
massive stone slabs erected to block the entrance. And imagine, there's nothing visual, nothing you can see, but that inexplicable change in atmosphere that contains all the uncanny connotation of a human presence, and if not human, something that has a sense of itself, a conscious being. And this being senses a living human body, a mouthpiece, and merges into it, gripping onto the synapses of the living person's brain and the neural pathways with its unfathomably powerful energies. The human medium it inhabits feels alien and awkward at first, but soon this conscious spirit being learns to wield the physical vocal cords of its host. It senses other human bodies around it and has feelings and impulses that somehow it wants to form and encapsulate in human speech. And with ancient longing and ancestral feeling, the being uses these strange cords in the throat, pulses through them to communicate. And everyone present hears through a voice mingled with familiar femininity and eerie depth, strange things. They listen to incomprehensible things about darkness captured and embraced, about ancestors and forms unknown and dwelling in weird dimensions, about all these points in time being there at that very moment. The people listen, the, the living people that is, and this satisfies the spirit being who remains perhaps as a guardian. And a guardian not to be trifled with, for as the story goes, very recently a group of almost stereotypically destructive young people graffitied the barrel walls defacing the stones with nasty chemicals and youthful ignorance. And a living woman was there. She was angry with her stupidity and nasty attitude, so she hit one of the stones. And the story goes that an energy, clearly an unfathomably powerful one, appeared and darted out of the entrance of the barrow. And indeed, there must be a reason why, thousands of years ago, the barrow was put out of use. Massive stone slabs erected, to block the entrance. Four, the woman later drove by the youths, only to see that their car had clearly been involved in a nasty accident. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history. And as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories 
And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening.